Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Eric Degotti has spent over 20 years in the fitness industry as a coach, trainer, and instructor, pioneering his unique approach to client assessment, performance enhancement, and injury prevention. Each year, Eric travels around the world, teaching and speaking to trainers, coaches, and therapists as a lead instructor for functional movement systems and as a guest speaker for such prestigious organizations as Mount Sinai Hospital, New York University Medical, the Navy SEALs, U.S. Army, Nike and Spark Camps, Frank Glazier Clinics, the Mayo Clinic, and multiple major universities. Eric has also appeared in the New York Times bestseller, The 4-Hour Body by Tim Ferriss. His list of training clients include individuals who have been an Olympic gold medalist, Gatorade Players of the Year, All-Americans, National Champions, World Series Champions, and Pro Bowl athletes. He also works with many high-level country, state, national, and world champion sports teams in leagues such as, but not limited to, the NFL and Major League Baseball. Eric Degotti, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So many fancy organizations that you've worked with. I could barely stumble through all of them. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. 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 It's it, 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 like the, the longer you go, the older I feel. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, if you're not watching this via video and you're just listening to this, I'm looking at Eric right now and you look like you're maybe 25, which is about the same time that you've been in the industry. So did you just get into it from birth? You just came out of the womb, yeah. just like bench pressing, like ready to go. Yeah, you can tell. Yes, it started as a toddler. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I would love to hear your history and your story about how you got to where you are today. Uh, So the the interesting, I didn't take the the, the more traditional route to getting to where uh, I am today, where I said, you know, out of high school, I'm going to, I'm going to go be in, in, in this field is that, uh, you know, I actually was originally out of high school, I thought I was going to be a chef. And uh, thought about going to culinary school, and I said, you know, this is a pretty specific uh, thing. You know, we didn't have have much money, so I said, I need to make sure that this is what I want to do. Uh, worked for a year in the restaurant industry, and I realized that this is not what I want to do. <laughs> and the restaurant industry in the, in the late '80s, early '90s was very different than it is today. So, wow. uh, so got into got into uh, doing sales and that sort of thing, and then said, you know, I, I I like fitness, so I was working out. I was actually starting to compete in some some bodybuilding shows, and the gym I was working out at said, "Well, once you, I'll put you on the floor as a trainer. Go get certified, and and while you're here, I can introduce you to you know the people from Hammer Strength or all the reps that come through here throughout the day." So started doing some training, and within three months, I was the top trainer there. I realized like there's a pretty low bar in this business that like who knows where this is going to take me. So pretty quickly moved up and, and kind of moved on, got into a, a, a rented space from, from a small personal training center and realized, well, you know, the owner here is not all that special either. Maybe I could do that. So I opened up my own facility in, in 2002 and had this vision of what fitness could be. And I created one human performance. And what that was, was the idea of having this multidisciplinary center uh, where you can go in and get exactly what you needed. Um, and because up until that point, I was always fascinated with the holistic approach to fitness. And most people here are holistic. They're, they're assuming like, right. They're assuming patchouli oil and like, you know, uh, some new age type of thing. Like holistic just means like treating everything that somebody needs from, from, from a, uh, mental chemical structural standpoint. So, uh, I opened up this facility and we had chiropractic care. We had physical therapy, we had nutrition, we had performance training, we had group fitness, we had Tai Chi, we had like, we had kind of everything. And back in 2002, like that was unheard of. Like most of those people didn't get together in this, in the same sandbox and play today. They, they barely do, but there's, there's been a whole, uh, shift towards that since I opened up in seeing that there's, there's a financial gain there where that wasn't really my motivation. My motivation was to say, look, I know enough to know that I don't know everything. If I can get a team around me, I could do much better. Had that facility for uh, 12 years. And then as I was doing that, I, I got really involved in education, started uh, working with FMS, became a lead instructor for them uh, back in, I guess this was around 2000. 2006, 2005, 2006, um, as well as started going out and teaching at, at different conferences and teaching some of my own materials. And then I was also going out and being a consultant for different teams. Um, most notably, I got uh, to work with the New York Giants from 2007 all the way to 2016. So all this stuff is happening as I have my facility. And so it got to a breaking point where like I can only be so many places at once. 
I had taken the facility as far as I wanted to take it. So I stepped away from the brick and mortar business to focus more on the teaching and consulting. And that's more of what I do now. Yeah, that's really incredible. What a fun transition from going from teaching like the individuals to teaching the industry really and helping to train so many other people who are then going to go out and share your message. And man, you're absolutely right. I mean, you've been at this longer than I have, but I remember when I first started, there was the personal trainer. That's all he was. He was, you know, counting reps and maybe did what I did, where you get your NASM certification. Like, oh, this is the only way you program design. There's this, this one way that you squat and there's not two or three different ways. It's just this one way. And you're kind of locked into that one thing. And when somebody needs nutrition help, well, okay, now you're going to go see somebody else who, who has nutrition, but it's not going to be in your same building for sure. Um, so I think that's cool. It's a great approach to incorporate all those different expertise, but all in the same, you know, building that must've been very revolutionary at the time. Well, there was people doing it. They were just doing a really shitty job of it. Right. They were, they were meaning that, um, like even in, in the big box gym I worked in, we had a chiropractor, we had group fitness, we had trainers, we had, we had those kind of things. Right. But here's what would happen. You go to the nutritionist and they would say, well, what the trainer told you was wrong. And then you'd go to the group fitness person and they say, well, you know, what the nutritionist said is not right. And then they go to the chiropractor and say, well, no, you need to do this. And you know what happens at the end of the day? The client's like, you know what? You're all idiots because I don't, I don't believe any of you, right? Because there's no continuity there. And, and so it was this turf war. It was this ego thing of like, I have, I have the special secret formula that you need. Um, when the reality was, is that, you know, if it, that I can't get to do all the things I don't want to do with you. So if I can get some extra conditioning, I'd love for you to be able to go in a really good group fitness program that can fill in that blank and you can have some fun and have some community and have that stuff in there. But um, it's also only so much is within my scope for nutrition. So if I can get that person to pick up where I left off, and then there's only so much I can do from the, the movement standpoint, then I may need some hands-on some stuff so that chiropractor can help out there. So if I can get those people to just kind of get the, have a system, and that was really what the biggest thing was, was creating this, this system and a flow chart to say, okay, well, sometimes they walk through the door for fitness and we find out, you know what, you really need clinical care. And then they walk through the door for clinical care and say, you know what, you, you're not really broken. You're just dysfunctional. You just need good training. And being able to have a system of checks and balances that kind of took ego out of it was really what my, my goal and mission was. That's incredible. I mean, what were some of the challenges when you were first getting started? Like, how did you eliminate that need to try to compete with everybody and get everybody cooperating and, and you know, creating a new program? So it's, it's, it's pretty simple to say that, like, um, here's, here's, this is an objective way of looking at things. Like, so if you come in the first thing from the fitness side of things, the first thing we would do is we're going to put you through a movement screen, right? And if you go through a movement screen and you have pain, right? Nothing that we do with your own body movement and a dowel rod and a two by six and a rubber band should hurt your body. So if it's hurting, that's your body screaming that I need something to, to, to get looked at here. And also the fact that if you're in pain, there could be a lot of different things that are driving that pain. And, and so, like when I'm teaching a workshop, I'll say, okay, somebody tell me what can cause back pain, right? And I actually just had this this weekend. I was teaching just outside of Philly. And I said, all right, somebody can tell me what could cause back pain. Of course, the hands go up around the room. Well, you could have a weak core. Oh, I could have tight hamstrings. Oh, I have tight hip flexors. I have all this, right? The list goes around. And then I say, anything else? People kind of think, I see, because guess what else? Cancer. Cancer can cause a little back pain. And a woman in the front goes, oh, that happened to me. And I said, oh, you had a client with that? She goes, no, it happened to me. She said, I had intermittent back pain for a year and nobody could figure it out. I had a cancerous tumor in my head. And listen, you can't foam roll that shit away, right? That is, but unfortunately, here's what happens. If she goes and, and goes to the trainer, that's the quote unquote corrective exercise specialist, and they're giving her all sorts of stretches and, and, and uh, core exercises for that. And they don't realize that like, that pain is, is, is telling me something then she doesn't go get the care she needs. God forbid we knows what happens when that doesn't happen. Like if I, I really quickly want to discover what's outside of my scope, right? And then at the same time for the clinicians, you need to understand like if they're not in pain, it's just dysfunction. And unless you have a recipe to, to do that, like send them to me because there's, you know, like in the SFMA portion, which is the medical model of the FMS, you have three reasons why you would have something going on. You'd have once you boil it down to a dysfunction, right? You'd have a soft tissue issue, which I can't really help you with. I can hand you a foam roller or you, know, you could use a massage gun or something, but you'd be much better served with some, some hands on you. You could have a joint mobility dysfunction, which again, I can do some soft mobilization, self-mobilization, but much better served than somebody who can do that hands on. 
Or the third thing is it's a motor control issue. Well, now you're in my wheelhouse. That's my sweet spot. I can I can address your motor control issues. So if I have that manual therapist, clinic, uh, that chiropractor, uh, physical therapist, um, athletic trainer who says, I'll mobilize the joints to do the soft tissue work, pass them on to you and you fortify that and lock that in and save, put hit save on the document with motor control stuff. Then that's a, that's a pretty lethal combination. Um, and the reality is, is that if you can, if you can break it down and get a good clinician, they don't, they don't have time to do all that stuff. They just don't. And so if they're really good manually, let them do that, what they're really good at and let me do what I'm really good at. And it's not a competition, you know, it's now, um, and, and like, I remember the first time I, I learned about foam rolling, you know, going back a million years ago. And I remember I was training a massage therapist at the time who I was referring a lot of people to. And I, I said, look, this is what I'm going to start implementing my clients before I do it. You're the soft tissue therapist. I want to take you through this. You tell me if I'm saying the right things, if I'm doing the right things, or if I'm bouncing outside my scope. And I remember she turned to me. She's like, this is awesome. She's like, but now you're not going to refer anybody to me. I said, no, it's actually the opposite. Because if I put people on this and they're wiggling and writhing in pain, I said, well, then that's a perfect window for me to say, you really need this. I need to get you over to this person who can who can do this better than a, a foam roller can. The foam roller back up what she does, but she's going to get us there that much faster, yeah. right? And that's that... It, it, and that's where we all can benefit. There's no shortage of of people that we can help. What I heard in that answer is something really consistent that I hear in a lot of your content, which is you are seeking to do the very best thing for the client. You're not seeking to do the best thing for you and make everybody fit into your cookie cutter program. And I think just for the listener, if you're ever looking around for a personal trainer or wondering who to hire, I think that's such an amazing trait is to really find somebody who's going to take the time, do a, a proper assessment, sit down and ask some goddamn questions. Like, what do you want? Why do you want this? ask several whys after that to get to the true reason of why people want things and then find somebody who's willing to say like, I can give you this, but you're going to need this, this, and this from these other people. And that's not a problem. We can all work together to find the best solution for the client. I love that. So you, you hit on a couple things that, that I, that I really like there cases. And one of them is we have a whole section in, in, in this new course that I'm doing on program design. It's called the key questions. Like before we ever get out, an FMS kit or a goniometer or a stopwatch or a vertical jump testing. The first thing we do is we sit, sit you down and ask some, a series of what we call key questions. And because if you miss those, I don't care how good your assessment is, your whole program is going to get blown up. So, you know, as an example, if you don't ask simple questions about um, what do you do all day, right? And you now program farmer's walks. For a guy that's a mason who carries cinder blocks all day, like there's the last thing he needs is to carry heavy stuff throughout the day. Like, and so you don't understand it. If you don't ask key questions, like what other kind of physical activities you're involved in? Um, because we just make this assumption that we're the end all be all. Everything we say is going to be, they're going to be hanging on every word. They're going to only do what we say. But the reality is they have a Peloton at home and they love to do the classes on that. But if I don't know that and and now I programmed a bunch of conditioning work for you. Well, now I'm kind of doubling up and wasting valuable time. I could have been working on a bunch of other things that you need. So I need to know those things. And if you don't ask those key questions, it doesn't matter how good your goniometric or your, your performance testing is because your, your whole program is going to get down the toilet. You know, so, so that's a huge thing. And then the second thing is, is that we all have these biases. And, and I talk about uh, in our course, we talk about, I, we call it the safety of your silo, right? So we start out in this industry and we find one thing that we kind of latch onto that we really like. And what happens, that kind of becomes our thing. We actually have a fun debate in our course. We call it, what's your thing? And you have to defend that or you actually have to knock it down. Like, so we had in the, in the group this weekend, we split the group in half. And so let's say somebody's a, a, say you're a kettlebell guy, right? You're known as that is your thing. Like, Hey, this is my friend Casey. He's a trainer. He's really into kettlebells. So what we do is we split up the group and then we make you argue against why kettlebells, like basically you have to argue why kettlebells suck, right? It's a, it's a Socratic debate about that. And so, cause what it gets you out of is this thing. So let's say you're that kettlebell person early on, you meet Pavel Sasselin, who's an incredible genius. And you're like, this is amazing. But now what happens is you get into almost this cult like silo where all you do is whatever Pavel says and whatever the kettlebell world says, which is amazing stuff. But what you're not, what you're missing is that right next to you, there's another silo with some really amazing stuff that maybe it's somebody who does Westside Method 
or somebody that does yoga or something like that, but you never peek out to see that. And so you kind of lose sight of, of a lot of things that could be added to your toolbox. And at the end of the day, when you walk in my door, I have zero vested interest in what your program ends up looking like. I don't care. I've been doing it long enough. So whether you end up doing a, uh, a, a thoracic mobilization laying on your side, whether you end up doing a box jump or whether you end up doing, you know, uh, repeats on the, on the echo bike. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. Like I have no, I have no stake in any of it. It's a matter of what's going to get you from where you are now to where you want to be. Right. So that, that mindset is, is kind of just, I don't have a thing that I'm married to that I have to stick with. I love that. Yeah. You don't make a commission if somebody decides to do a bench press. No, no, no. Yeah. Like it, 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 the, the dollar I make maybe if that to cover the shipping on selling you a foam roller is not worth <laughs> telling you that foam rolling is going to save your life. Yeah, right. Totally. Wow. I absolutely love that. I definitely want to deep dive into PPD with you, your program, because I think it's really intelligently done. And I love that you start out before you do any kind of assessments as really sitting down, building rapport with the client and really understanding what they want. And I, I, I think that's just so critically important. Um, we do at some point have to assess people. And and this is how you initially got involved with functional movement screen, which is one of my absolute favorite tools. Um, I've loved learning about it. I've loved using it with my clients over the years. Can you talk to us a little bit about the history of FMS, what it is, where it came from, and why there was a need for it? Okay. So uh, so first we'll go through the, the, the history of how the screen came out. So the two main players uh, are Lee Burton, who's an athletic trainer. Uh, and Gray Cook, who's a physical therapist, both in Southern Virginia. And so you have Lee as an athletic trainer who's doing, um, who's noticing a trend that why are certain kids always in the training room? And there's other kids that I never see in the training room, right? And as he's going through his pre-participation uh, physicals, he has a, a, a doctor with him who's, who's a wise old doc who's looking at kids. He's asking kids to squat. It's like, why, why are you asking that? He's like, well, you watch. The kids who can do that well are the kids that you probably don't see as much. And he started seeing this correlation. So that's kind of interesting and say, maybe we can do more movement than this isolated, you know, type of traditional orthopedic testing that we're doing. Now, as that's happening, Gray Cook, who's a physical therapist, he's going, he's frustrated by the dogmatic approach of, of physical therapy and saying that if you have this injury, we'll come in, you get this, this for that type of thing. Oh, you have a knee injury. Well, you're going to come in and you're going to do clamshells and you're going to do TKEs and you're going to do that sort of thing. And saying, well, that's, we don't necessarily work in parts. We work in patterns. And people like Shirley Sarman and pioneers who looked at movement as more of a holistic type of uh, language that we express, he's kind of looking at that. And so he gets called into a um, major, as he often does, gets called into a major division one university uh, in their athletics department to look at one of their athletes who had torn his groin off the bone twice, right? Sports hernia, boom. And so they're like, how is this happening? So he goes in this room and this poor kid's up in the front of the room in his underwear and everybody in the room is pointing their fingers, right? So they, the opposite scenario of what we just talked about, right? You have sports medicine docs, you have athletic trainers, you have strength coaches, skill coaches, all point say, you know, you didn't do something right. You did it too much. You did it too little, all blaming each other. And meanwhile, he raises his hand and says, you know, um, did anybody uh, notice what's going on with his ankles? They said, no, 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 Gray, it's his, it's his, it's his hip, it's his groin. He said, no, no, no I, I know that, but like, he has one ankle that doesn't move and, and the other one does. And so this is one of the fastest kids in the country. So he says, tell me the story. What happened with the ankle? He's like, well, I just rolled it in practice and they kind of taped it up and uh, just kind of moved forward. And he said, well, where was that in the scheme of the groin injury? He goes, well, it was not right before it. He goes, first I had this thing. And he points to, he points to his pubis symphysis, right? Which is right in the front of you, right below your belly button. And he said, well, I had that thing. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, what were you doing that caused that? He goes, I don't know. I think it was the high speed incline treadmill stuff I was doing. So meaning that if you have somebody that has to go up and on high speed incline treadmill and one ankle can fully flex up and the other one can't, you have two options. You're either going to face plant, which a good athlete's not going to do, or you have to hike that hip is the only way you're getting that leg through. So now you hike your hip and you hike your hip and you hike your hip and that's creating that shearing force up in your pelvis. And now all of a sudden he starts to get irritation there. Now. Um, sure enough, he said, well, what, what happened next? He said, well, they, they gave me a cortisone injection because well, clearly he had a cortisone deficiency, right? So, I can't even, I so can't with that, even. I, it's so ridiculous. So, so, so with that, 
they took away the signal. Like I always say, like if your smoke alarm's going off in your house tonight in the middle of the night, you go down, you pop out the nine volt battery, you didn't put out a fire, right? Yep. That was your that was the signal. Was going back to the time before with the paint saying something's wrong here. Well, they didn't do that. They did that. He keeps sprinting on it and boom, he creates this, this groin tear. Now, before everybody gets nervous, like that if you're losing a little dorsiflexion that you're going to go tear your groin off the bone, we're talking about incredible amounts of force and amplitude being put through your pelvis. Like I'm not doing that. I just don't move that fast. Like I always joke that, that you know, I yanked my hamstring in a pickup game of, of, of football uh, a year or two ago. I was so excited. I actually produced enough force to, to pull my hamstring. It was like my, my crowning achievement, my athletic career. <laughs> but now what happens, what happens with this kid is they, they look very myopically. They do the surgery, they do the rehab where they poke and prod and ice and eat and stim and rub and, and exercise and stretch everything related to his groin, but never take a second to look at his ankle. And sure enough, it happens again. So now Gray leaves that situation and says, how did that get missed? Like, those are really smart sports medicine performance and, and skill people. How does that get missed? Like how maybe I'm missing that. And so he starts to sketch out, like based on what he's learned so far, what could I do as a quick screen as a filter to make sure I don't miss these things holistically. And that is what kind of became the seven movements, which became the movement screen as we know it today. And so with that, they started incorporating that into the pre-participation physicals. Started to see some correlations with, with, you know, the kids who are more injured and the kids who are not. Then people start picking up on that. And people like John Tureen, who's a friend of ours who was a strength coach of the Colts for many years, he does the screens on the players and then sits back and, and looks to see what the, the data shows. And he notices that the, the guys who scored poorly were 35% more likely to end up on the injury reserve. Well, if you're looking to protect multi-million dollar investments, you're going to try to figure out what are your, your high risk individuals. And so now that starts catching fire a little bit in the NFL. And that's how I got to go do workshops, you know, for four different NFL teams and got to work with the giants for all those years is to say, we need to protect our investments. And then that trickles over to other sports and then that trickles into the military. And now it's trickled into, um, the, the, um, industrial world where we're seeing people who are using it with factory workers and using it with, with office workers to say, we want to try to, cause one of the, what's become the number one cost to insurance companies is musculoskeletal injuries. And so because of that, if we can look at movement as being a, as being one of the risk factors in that, if we can take that off the board, we can start to address some of these things. So that's kind of in a nutshell, a real quick history of what's happened in the last 25 years with them. And then with me personally, I had the good fortune of learning from some really smart people and, and doing internships with Paul Check and Charles Poliquin. And, and at the same time, um, my brother, who's a, who's got, uh, his, he's got his DPT, his doctorate in physical therapy as well as he just, he's just finishing up his PhD in physical therapy. I would kind of steal his books and sneak into his classes and, and, and learn from him. And I would learn the stuff about Vladimir Yanda and Florence Kendall and all that stuff. So between that and the, and what I was learning on the fitness side, I really put together this, this super comprehensive evaluation, right? And I had a couple bottlenecks. The problem was is that it took me almost an hour and a half to do. Um, and so because of that, it became prohibitive for a lot of people to afford that if it was going to be worth my time. Two is that I was, it was right around that time I was opening my facility and then I was the bottleneck, right? So if people wanted to come in and train, if I wanted them to get evaluated first, because that's what I wanted to believe in terms of customizing the program, well, they had to come see me and everybody having to filter through me became an issue. Um, and the biggest issue was, is I was taking all this data and as much as it was impactful, when I took a step back and critiqued it, it's really cool to know on my goniometer exactly how many degrees of glenohumeral internal rotation you have. But you know what? If you can't breathe right and touch your toes and, and that the, the big rocks, simple things, like that stuff didn't matter. And it wasn't really impacting my programming at the end of the day. So I said, how can I maybe filter this down a little bit? So I took my entire staff to one of the first FMS workshops that they had. Uh, and I said, listen, what we'll do is, is now that we know this, let's start um, doing these screens with everybody coming in and anything you can't figure out with that screen, then send them to me and I'll do the full leave out. Well, my, my workload cut down 75% right out of the gate. And then over time, I became obsolete and I loved it, right? Because I didn't need to do these in-depth evaluations with with the gross majority of people that's not what they needed and so i was having some great success with it and then i went back and i start reaching out to lee 
you know, and this, this is early on in FMS. And I said, Hey, well, I want to get involved in this thing. And he says a joke, like, he, you know, he's like, you know, he tell, turned to Gray and said, I got this guy from Jersey called me. But he wants to get involved. Involved in what? Like we do this, this exam for and physicals with high school kids. Like, what are we, what are we going to do with them? So he's like, all right, well, why don't you come help us teach whenever we're in the New York area? So I'd come and hang out and help them teach. And then they were like, Hey, you know, this stuff pretty good. So if we, you know, we can't be at this course, can you go teach it? And that's how it kind of came to be. And here we are 15, 16 years later, and I'm going around the world teaching it uh, to, to people, you know, from all walks of life. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. They were great explanation. I love that you kind of found that the FMS was like everything that you needed at least to get started and really prioritizes the big movements, but you can definitely go down other paths and more assessments and more things that they need to. But starting with that as a foundation and a test that takes, you know, 10, 15 minutes maybe and, and allows you to see overall movement patterns and where the dysfunction lies, I think is so critically important for somebody who has not done it. Can you describe what the process is like and how the scoring works? So it's, it's super simplistic in that we look at seven fundamental patterns. Okay. Um, we have three, uh, what we call top tier integrated patterns where we look at your overhead deep squat. We look at your, what we call your inline lunge, where it's not just, it's basically a split squat, but we tie your upper body up specifically in a reciprocal reaching pattern. As you do it, we do a single leg step over, which we call our hurdle step. Those are our big three patterns on your feet. And then we have four more fundamental patterns Two are more control biased. Uh, one that looks more at your reflexive control called your rotary stability in a quadruped position, hands and knees position. One is a trunk stability push up where we do a very specific setup to check how well you sync up and create growth stability in your trunk. And then we have a few that are more mobility biased where we look at a uh, uh, laying on your back leg raise, but not just how high you can lift your leg, but how high you can lift your leg without having any effect on the opposite side. And then we also look at your shoulder mobility, basically a reciprocal behind your back reaching pattern. And then we've recently uh, added ankle mobility in there. And then based on that, I can start to get a pretty good profile of where you're at. And in terms of, are you somebody that needs more mobility, somebody that needs more control? Are you somebody that needs a little bit of both? And it's also not part specific because if you tell me, oh, well, I have tight, I have a tight hip flexor. Well, that tight hip flexor squatted just fine. And And it also... Uh, lunge just fine. But now all of a sudden, as soon as I ask you to pick up one leg, now all of a sudden that hip flexor is not working anymore. So it's not a hip flexor problem. It's a hurdle step problem. It's a single leg balance problem. So let's, let's piece that out. Let's dig down that rabbit hole. Now that's it. And then based on that, what it tells me is, is in terms of scoring, it tells me if something is just fine, you have, in terms of what we're looking for, you have enough movement and competency that we're not worried about it. It could be that it's it's not at least meeting the minimums, and that's where we should do two things. Number one is, most importantly, we need to remove the negative, kind of the old Hippocratic oath of do no harm, that there's certain exercises you probably shouldn't do, at least right now. Um, and then there are some things that we can do. We can create some strategies that can help improve that movement and improve it enough that you can start going back and doing those things we took away. And then we also look to tease out, is there pain? Doesn't, and that's regardless of how, how well you move. It's just to see, does that hurt? Because if that hurts, like we went and said before, that needs clinical attention. Now, that being said, is there's a lot of misconceptions. And, I, and when I teach FMS, it's more about teaching what it's not than it is what it, than actually what it is, right? What it's not. It is not a clinical diagnostic. I can't tell you have a torn labrum or a... a um, you know, uh, any sports hernia based on this, it's not made for people in pain. So it's not making me trying to be a physical therapist. It just tells me when I need, it is not, um, sports specific. So when people say, Oh, well, I, I don't like using FMS cause it's not specific to golf. Well, it was never designed to be, it's designed to be baseline fundamental human movement. If you need something specific or for golf, once you can check the boxes in your FMS, well then go do a TPI screen. Cause that is specific to the dynamics of golf. Right. So that's where that is. It's well, the FMS doesn't predict performance. You're right. We never said it would. It was never meant to predict performance. It doesn't have a correlation with that. And so it doesn't necessarily so much tell me what to do in your program. It more just tells me what not to do. And if, if there's any way I could really, you know, sum it up, it, you know, I've talked with other instructors that we have about like, what would be our goal if you took our level one course as you walking away, whether you're a physical therapist, athletic trainer, personal trainer, strength coach, what would be my main goal? of having you do a movement screen, it's to get us to not do dumb shit. It's pretty that simple, right? So, you know, when you look at injuries, you know, everybody said, well, it's an injury prevention tool. Mm, 
kind of. We look at this as being one risk factor in injuries, but there's a lot of risk factors in injuries. Sleep, previous injury, um, your your body fat levels, all these things are, 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 are risk factors. And when you put them all in a blender, then we can kind of see a risk profile. But this is just one factor. We've never really had a objective, simple, and easy to use tool for. And that's where it fits. That's where it creates its niche, right? Um, like when I work in, work with the giants, you know, we had, we had athletic trainers and medical professionals. If you're hurt, we had strength coaches, if you know, to get you better, but there's a lot of people in that gray area. I'm not really hurt enough to go in there, but I'm not really healthy enough to do everything he's asking me to do. And how do I address this gray area? And so that's kind of what it's looking at in terms of, you know, we look at injuries and people have the ex, the, the expression case where they'll say like, oh, you can go out, you know, you walk out the door, and get hit by a bus today. Right. Of course you can, but I'm not going to be the one pushing you in front of the bus. Mm. That's the whole job of the FMS is to make sure like there's a lot of people going into gyms and they're getting hurt in the gyms, like where exercise has actually become the risk factor. So I just need to know, look, you can't even touch your toes. I don't care how good of a coach you are. You're never going to be able to get them into an optimal deadlift position. You're just not. And it's not saying that the deadlift is bad or you're bad. It's just saying that they're bringing that. That's, that's not an environment issue. That's an organism issue right? The organism is showing up to the environment with dysfunctions that are not going to allow them to express the skill you're looking to do, right? Now, if they move well enough, right? We're not looking to move perfect. They move well enough. Now it's time just to be a good coach and make sure you can teach the exercise skill and make sure you can program the the, the uh, intensity and volume appropriately so they can maintain that exercise skill. And that's just being a good coach, but this is the piece to say, at least you're dealing with someone who is coachable. You at least have somebody who can learn it because if not, that poor movement is a barrier to skill acquisition. Yeah. Uh, again, just so well explained. I absolutely love that. I do want to talk about some of the specific movements in the FMS. We don't have to go over every one, but there's a few that um, maybe we could highlight a little bit. And the first one is the deep squat, which is probably my favorite. I feel like it tells me more kind of globally what's going on than any other test. I don't know if that's consistent with other people who do the FMS, um, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts on the, the deep squat are and what things you're specifically looking for. Okay. So the deep squat is the, I like to say it's the sum of all the other patterns, right? Um, and so the, the, the good thing about it is that you can, if you look at that, you, you get one quick glimpse, but you can get very easily deceived just because there are systems that's, that's their, their primary, if not their only movement assessment. And they, you can start to make a lot of assumptions, right? You make assumptions that, oh, well, if this person, uh, can't squat well, well, they have, this is tight and this is weak and this is tight and this is weak. And they come up with stretch this strength and that, and this hold this for that approach. Well, where that goes wrong is that that whole thing I said before, well, what if you go and you're making this assumption that because they turn their feet out or they pitch forward in their squat, it's their ankles that are tight. Well, I'm not going to guess. That's why we have an ankle mobility screen. And if I screen and your dorsiflexion is, is, is more than sufficient, well, then I saved a whole bunch of time not doing ankle mobility drills with you because that's not the issue. And there's a lot of reasons why your feet can turn out and you can pitch forward. The other thing too, is you can get to see where I've had people who have some really good squats who then we get deeper into the screen and everything goes off the rails, right? They're really good at compensating or maybe even there's someone who's slightly hypermobile. And so they can look really uh, impressive in a squat, but then as soon as you push them up against some other barriers that maybe challenge their rotary stability or maybe challenge, um, you know, their shoulder mobility that they can't, they can't get there. Right. And so that's why we have some built-in redundancy that we don't miss things like that. And that's why we look and see for trends and profiles. We're not looking to say any one thing is going to predict what has happened or what's going to happen. Yeah. You're just getting an overall sense of what's going on at that point. Yeah. So the deep squat is probably as much as it's a cool thing to look at in terms of, a, Hey, let's kind of look at where you're at. It, it, it doesn't tell me a lot of things. And then you have to consider even within the deep squat, there's so many, not only literal moving parts, but then you have to look at, you know, the, the body type and the, the architecture and their, their anthropometry of, 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 um, their anthropometry of, of like how the tibia height versus the femur height versus their torso, like, you get a, a six nine NBA player, their squat's not going to look like me at five six squat, and it's just not. So we can't have this idyllic picture of this is what you should look like. You know, the whole thing of oh, we should all be able to squat like a baby. No, you can't. It just doesn't happen that way. Like you were a ball of cartilage then. You're not now. 
and there's different, all these different lever lengths. And so it's not going to be this one size fits all squat. Yeah, very well explained also. A lot of people will give me the shocked look when they try the squat, their heels elevate, their feet turn out, um, there might be some knee valgus. It's fairly common, I would say a lot of people have that type of movement pattern, but as soon as we slide that two by six underneath their heels, they're able to execute that movement generally much, much better. Can you comment on why that might be for a lot of people? Yeah, my joke is get you some high heels, you're good to go, you're all fixed. <laughs> Perfect, easy. Um, but if you can squat with a heel lift, the automatic assumption is, well, I must have tight calves. Well, maybe, but that's why we, again, that's why we do an ankle mobility screen to see if that actually is the case. But you, there's more to it. That changes your center of gravity. And so by changing your center of gravity, the person who was scared to, to have a posterior shift in, in their weight to initiate the movement may be able to do that now. It, it changes a lot of things in terms of how those levers are going to match up as you go into your squat. So um, I, if you can do that, it doesn't tell me anything in terms of what's tight, what's weak, what do we, you know, what I need to do in terms of your exercises. It just tells me that, okay, you have some level of this pattern in that software somewhere. Um, you just can't draw on that on the floor. And it, if you can never draw it on the floor, you can still live a, live a long, happy life. It's a matter of, okay, what environment am I sending you back out to in terms of what kind of load and stressors you're going to be putting in, into your body? And is that an essential movement for what you need to do throughout your day? Yeah, that's such a great way to evaluate what is truly functional. Does this person need this particular function in their life and they're not able to access it? Or maybe it's something they, they may or may not really need in their lives. And so to push down a certain path to get them a movement that they don't need seems like kind of a waste of time. Is that Would you agree with that? I, the, the, the better way I'd frame it is to say what we look for is like if we get a, you know, a, a panel of 10 people in our field and we put it on the floor of what is perfect movement, right? Or even what, even what is optimal movement? We can have a beer and peanuts argument for to the end of time of what that is, right? I, I work a lot with baseball players and there's an entire component of Twitterverse arguing about what is the best factors and boxes to check for, for ideal pitching motion. So there's never going to be a, a, an agreed upon answer, but we all can kind of agree on what the minimum is, what's going to be acceptable, right? So that's really what we have to look at. Do you at least meet those movement minimums as, as a baseline, right? So, you, you know, so you should be able to at least touch your toes. I don't think there's anybody that's going to argue that, you know, it's optimal. It doesn't make a difference. You can, you can touch your toes or not, right? Um, that's kind of a primary fundamental movement that's going to carry over to, to anybody in any walk of life. You should be able to do that. You should be able to rotate freely right to left. You should be able to extend. You should be able to squat to a certain level. These are just baseline fundamental things that you at least want to meet the minimum of. And so um, if you're, if you're, you know, we rate it zero, one, two, or three, zero is painful. Three is at least you're, you're checking all the boxes and you're following all the rules that we've asked you to do. And you can maintain your setup position. Two is acceptable. And so as long as you're a two, you're good. It's one that this is a red flag that even if we lower the bar a little bit, so to speak, not necessarily literally the bar, but if we lower the, the expectations you still can't even meet those, right? And those are the people that I'm most concerned about is the people who are in pain or the people who can't even do it to the most minimum level. Mm. And a lot of the movements are scored right side and left side. Um, I believe it's five out of the seven are scored with a right and left. Five not out of seven, just, yeah. Yeah, with, with not just, you know, overall what's going on with both sides together, but right side and left side. And where I see a lot of asymmetry, probably the most asymmetry that I see is in the shoulder mobility test. So I'm wondering if that's something consistent with what you've seen. You've done far more than I ever have. Um, and how can people address shoulder asymmetry? It seems to come up quite a bit. Okay, so asymmetry in general is asymmetry uh, beyond reason. And what I mean by that is that what we've teased out is that, let's say with your shoulder mobility, where you reach behind your back with one hand up, one hand down. And let's say one hand is, you know, with the right hand on top, you're six inches apart, and the other hand, you're eight inches apart. That's not necessarily anything that we, we're going to freak out about, right? You don't have to be perfect within each side. But if we have one that goes six and the other one goes 13, Okay, well, now we have something we're, we're more concerned with. So it's asymmetry and the reason. If you look at the data, you look at military research, think NAPIC did the research on hip extension, that anything less than, uh, you know, um, a 10-degree differential really doesn't make a, a, a huge difference. It's once it goes beyond that. And a lot of the asymmetry research shows if you get beyond like that 10% difference, then we start to say, okay, well, that's where the, the risk factors go up, kind of hockey stick go up on the, on the risk chart. So 
that's that's in terms of just considering asymmetries. You're not going to be absolutely perfect. And there's people who do amazing things and live happy lives with with not being perfectly symmetrical. It's just symmetrical within reason. You shouldn't have a gross difference between the two. Now, specifically with shoulder mobility, where most of that comes from, and, and usually you'll see it when your dominant hand is behind you. So if I'm reaching above my left hand and my right hand's behind, as a right-handed individual, you'll see they're more restricted than if you were to do the opposite. Now, people automatically assume, well, that's because I can't reach behind my back and it's a lack of internal rotation or it's something specifically on the shoulder. Now, that can certainly be the case. And more times than not, it's actually lack of extension in the shoulder, not internal rotation. But before you take somebody and you, you know, drop them down into a sleeper stretch, the first thing I do is I look more regionally and look at your, your thorax and your T-spine. And more, more times than not, we clear up a lot of those asymmetries by just working on uh, rotation of your thorax and T-spine and getting that equaled out. And just, you know, if you take someone, sit them in a chair and you just have them either cross their arms in front or hold the dowel in the back and have them without moving their, their you know, keeping their knees together, legs crossed, have them rotate right, have them rotate left. And you'll usually see a pretty significant difference on the, especially those people who score differently on their shoulder reach. And what you do is you just hammer out more rotation to get that equaled out. And a lot of times we'll see people's shoulder mobility clean up really quickly. Now, if it doesn't, now you have more of a local thing that we can go and address. But I don't want to address this first because I actually, let's say you take that person and you crank them into a, into a sleeper stretch. Now you've created possibly hypermobility in their shoulder. And they still can't move their T-spine. And so your, your body's going to find the path of least resistance. So, so now it's going to go to a hypermobile joint. You made things worse, right? So that's the part of kind of understanding this integration of regional interdependence that everywhere there's a, there's a spot that's, that's has a lack of mobility somewhere. And it's usually right above or below it. There's a lack of stability or motor control. Yeah. I love explaining to my clients the kind of series through the joints of where typically people will lack mobility and where they're going to lack stability and how those pretty much alternate all through the body. It's really interesting how we're built that way and how, you know, if you've got some ankle mobility issues, you might have some knee stability issues or vice versa. It can go both ways. Yeah. That's, that actually comes from a, a conversation over beer between coach Mike Boyle and Gray Cook is, is how the joint by joint approach came. Uh, of kind of looking at that stacking of the body. Now, where that also gets thrown, and, and what I've probably seen the biggest uh, eye opener in the last few years is most because it's, and I, I, there's a there's a confluence of factors that I think that are in, in my theory of why it's happening. But one is is that one of the biggest trends in the fitness world right now is mobility. Right, I think part of that is driven from a, a business standpoint of a much of an older population with disposable income coming to our field, the, the 40 plus who are coming in who want to be fit, but they have tons of mobility issues. And if you can address that, you know, you're, you're increasing your value. So now with that, the market follows. And now we have things like FRC, we have all, you know, Kelly Surrett's rise, fame and all these things. And, and all those things are incredible. And, and, and there, there, there has amazing value, but because, and, and then you package that on top of, testing systems and therapies that are really mobility biased, right? If you go to your local physical therapist, chiropractor, they're going to mostly look to mobilize. They're going to look to get moving, to stretch, to do all these sorts of things, to get more mobility. Yet they don't have a filter or a plan for that person who, who lacks motor control. And, and having motor control and stability is something that's really getting missed. And I can't tell you how many clients I get because I get a lot of the people that like, I've been everywhere else, nothing helped. I had a guy in this morning. I've been everywhere else. Nothing's helped. I'm not getting any better. And the, the missing factor in the equation is usually some level of motor control and stability that's being missed. And they're actually, the more that they stretch and the more they do mobility, the worse they're getting because um, it, it, at best, it's a net net uh, um, equal. But at worst, they're, they're, they're creating mobility in spots that, you know, they're, they're stiff for a reason right? They're stiff because they're protecting an unstable joint. And now all of a sudden you've created this instability and now, now you've created another problem by doing that. And even if it, 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 even in a net negative or where they're not getting anything, they're not getting any bad effects from it is that it doesn't stick, right? I go to the chiropractor, you know, he or she adjusts me. I feel better for a day or two. And then it goes right back. I do all those stretches, but an hour later, I'm just as tight again. I, I do the massage gun on this trigger point, but I got to do it every single day right? If that was the answer and you're still going to have an answer for six months, it's not the answer. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't want to knock 
a massage therapist, but the first thing that I thought of was going to massage. Like anytime I ever got massage, I'd feel like, okay, maybe the next day after feeling beat up, but then it would always go back to the way that it was anyway. And it's like, what is the reason that I'm tight in these places anyway? There's got to be another underlying reason that I'm not getting to. And, and then you have to break it down uh, and have a, 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 an appreciation for the three kind of levels that, that we work at movement on that you can see things with first is the local level. Okay. You have a stuck ankle. Cause maybe, you know, you rolled your ankle a couple weeks ago and pick up basketball game that, you know, the, the, it's no longer a medical concern. Your, 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 uh, the joint integrity is still there. Um, the swelling has gone down, but now you have this residual compensation that you're dealing with. And you have stiffness in your calves and anterior tib and those sorts of things. That is a local issue. So that massage therapist can go in and clean out a lot of the stuff that is that has been the, the residual of that, that traumatic event. But then you can look at things more in a regional standpoint. A regional standpoint, they have somebody who sits all day and you have this, this uh, cascade of things that have become uh, actually shortened. There's been, there's been adaptive shortening of, say, the, the, the hip flexors because they're sitting all day and how that's changed things. And you have more of a regional thing throughout the hip complex. But then you also have global issues, right? And those global issues are not always, they can show up as a musculoskeletal dysfunction, but they're not always driven from musculoskeletal drivers. And what that means is that it could be that you have this, more times than not, it's you have this, you're this sympathetically overdriven individual who's high stress, who doesn't breathe well, who doesn't sleep. And all of a sudden now you have this, this increased tension and tone throughout your tissues and that you can go and and go to the greatest massage therapist in the world, um, and walk out and, you know, crush your 17th cup of coffee of the day and get on, you know, get on the cell phone and stress out and then not sleep. And then, uh, all those things, it's not the massage therapist's fault, right? It's just a matter of having that understanding of kind of going through, what you're prioritizing and, and understanding what matters. And so, you know, in the program design course, I use the jar of life analogy, right? And if you've ever heard the, the kind of proverbial story of the jar of life, it's actually created by an uh, uh, economics professor who at a university took out a jar, put it on his desk, and he takes out some big rocks and pours it in the jar and says, okay, who says the jar is full? Kids raise their hand. Then he takes out some pebbles, pours it in, fills in the space in between the rocks. Okay, who says the jar is full? Okay, they will raise their hand. They say he takes out some sand and he fills in all there. He says, now the jar is full. And then he says, what this represents, all right, what this is analogous to is the things in your life, right? The big rocks are your family, your, your closest loved ones. That's that's the big things. And then you have the pebbles. That's your your job and your your associates and your friends and your kind of next level circle. And the sand is the little things, the minutia throughout the day. Then he empties it out and he pours all the sand in first. And then there's no room for the rocks and pebbles. And he says, if we all focus on the sand, we miss the big things, right? And so it has this great undertone message. So I took that, stole it and said, well, the same thing could be done for training, right? The big rocks are, do you sleep? Can you breathe? Can you do basic fundamental movements? Is your nutrition at least not hurting you and hopefully even helping you, right? Can, Can we get those big rocks covered first? Because if not, you're three degrees and you're missing and your dorsiflexion doesn't matter right? Then the, the, the pebbles are the next kind of the next level down. And then the sand is the sand is what everybody on Twitter is fighting about. And it's like, dude, let's, let's take a step back from all this. Like I don't have, I deal with professional athletes and even they don't get to this because they're dealing with a whole bunch of other stuff. Meaning that you're arguing about what's the optimal range on your velocity on your VBT device on a trap bar deadlift. But meanwhile, like I have a, I have a, a professional pitcher who's, who has a newborn at home and got four hours of sleep last night. Right. So let's, let's kind of always be able to take a step back and understand the big picture of where everything fits in terms of prioritizing really what matters in terms of your programming. Yeah, that's such a great way to think of things and making sure that you're prioritizing what's really, really important and what's going to make the biggest change versus the minutia that we can all get swept up in when we get too myopic. My favorite version of that story is when the professor then cracks a beer and pours it in and says something like, you know, no matter how full life gets, there's always time for a beer. So. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. It works too. Um, I do want to talk about the principles of program design, which you came up with going through that program and seeing the content that you've created with that. It's pretty impressive. Can you talk about some of the components of, of that program that you put together? 
so uh, this is a program that that uh, we just recently released within the last few months. We did our first live course this past weekend, uh, as I said, just outside of Philadelphia. And so where this the, the genesis of this was myself and Mike Perry, who became a real good friend of mine. He's a fellow FMS instructor, also a lead instructor for senior instructor for Strong First and doing kettlebell certifications. And so we were actually down at FMS headquarters during the, the shutdown. And we were just talking about, you know, potential content that we could we could not only do for FMS, but maybe even do on our own. And we said, what is the blind spot that everybody's missing? And like, and so we kind of started thinking about it. Say, all right, we go out and teach this thing, this FMS thing every, you know, all the time on weekends. And probably the biggest thing that, that we see is a, is, a, is a weak spot. It's that they, they learn this, but they don't know how to like package it back into their program. And then you start saying, well, that's kind of like everything. Like people go out and they learn kettlebells or they learn kinesio taping or they learn this one method, but because they don't have a, a, a system of principles that they can feed that back into, they either do one or two things. They go back and now everybody's going to do this for the next two weeks until I take the next weekend course and everybody's going to do that for the next two weeks, or they just trash it because it doesn't fit into their own selective biases. And so what we said is, all right, well, let's, let's figure out a way to take program design, but let's take, let's sit down. And Mike, you know, has been doing this for about 20 years. I'm going on 24 years. And I said, let's go through all of our screw ups. Like, what would I want to know 20 something years ago? What did we screw up? Well, we screwed up that, you know, we got really wrapped up into, you know, being one thing, right? Mike got to be known as a kettlebell guy. I was known as first, I was the check guy. And then I was an FMS guy, right? So I don't want to be that. Because the more I got pinned and told to that, I even saw people around me who were doing that. And it, it, it was very, uh, um, it pretty much put the clamps on any growth. So we want to take that's where the whole initial, you know, start with why, getting out of your silos, that whole initial piece. And then it was, you know, we see a lot of trainers who are super successful, but the reality is they really suck at training, right? We all know that, that, that trainer at the gym that you're like, why do people train with them? Like it's a train wreck, but they love them. They'll run through a train for, uh, thrown through a wall for them. It's because there's just people really like them. They gravitate to them and they trust them. And then there's trainers we know that have every certificate in the world and every degree in the world, but just can't relate to human beings, can't teach, can't, you know, get people to, to, to trust and buy in with them. So we need to address that. And how do you actually get that conversation off? And then it was data collection, not just FMS, but like, what are the information? What Like right now, if I said, Casey, you're going to write a program for me, what is the non-negotiable information you're going to need to know, right? Other than like name, address, so forth. Like what's the non-negotiable information you need to know about my movement? Do you need to know about performance factors? Do you need to test my body fat? What are the things that are going to be the necessary data that you collect and then how are you going to use that data what do you is it going to change your program kind of like i said before i was collecting data that didn't end up using and then what's going to be your next thing because now i looked at the people that came to me and what they complained about other facilities yeah they did this super in-depth evaluation on me on day one and then everybody got the same program anyway or never went back and tested it so i don't know if anything's changed right they just did a lot of eyewash testing to draw you in but it didn't affect your program. And they never went back and tested because that's the one fear that people have with testing is because it puts your ego in check. Like you, you, you have to put yourself out on that, on that high wire because what if they don't change? What if they don't improve? Are you okay with that? Are you, can you have that conversation? Or do you want to not show that, that blemish on, on, your, on your program? And then from there, it's like, all right, now let's get to the building blocks of building a program, right? And so we're big on checklists. So we have a 10-point checklist. These are all things you need to address within your writing a program. And it's very simple and it's very systematic of, of those things. Now, within that, once you have that system, you can be very artful with it. We talk about this is the art and science of programming. But here's the things that the, the principles we're going to go by. Then a program is not a workout. A workout, we can go online and pull down a wad, right? That's just a workout. And uh, just doing a workout is not a bad thing. Like it could be fun, could be, you know, something you do, but it doesn't necessarily mean a program is getting you to where you want to be, right? A, a workout is just challenging you. Now, is that challenge taking you closer to where you want to be, further from where you want to be, or is it just net neutral? It's not getting you anywhere. So I want to get workouts within the program that are driving you to where you want to be. So I have a five-point checklist for that. Then at the end, and then within all that, we, we have case studies, we have interactive stuff. And then the last curveball we throw you, and this has been one of my biggest passions for the last couple of years, is this. I said, okay, 
Casey, you feel pretty comfortable. You know how to write a program now. You got this kick-ass program. Everybody in the room's excited about. It's up on the whiteboard. We think this is the program, the end-all programs. Uh, I got a curveball for you. Your client that that you wrote that for, they rolled their ankle in a basketball game this weekend. Or they they had a cross-country flight and they were delayed three hours and they, they have no sleep and they're stiff as all hell, right? Or this person's, you know, is super stressed and they're fighting off a cold. Well, guess what? Crumple up your program because the organism that's in front of you now is not the same organism you tested and wrote the program for. So how do I adopt that, right? Is the whole concept, oh, I'll just go lighter. Well, that, that doesn't work, right? I have to be able to figure out a way to adapt that and I have to have a safety net to catch that. So I show you what uh, I use as a daily readiness screen, right? And and whether it's using utilizing tech like whoop bands or aura, strap, uh, aura rings or, or, or morphia straps, those sorts of things, or looking at your current movement competency and your movement readiness to how do you incorporate other factors from grip to breath holds to all these things to kind of put a picture together of here's where your current state is today. And I'm going to match that up with where that was last week. And if you're down a tick, well, I need to adjust my program accordingly. If it's at the same or higher, well, then I'm going to ramp it up. Um, and so this, this not only helps drive the programming, but also opens up the door to questions and conversations that you might not have had previously. So let's say if we look at your breath holds score, and it's you, I have this data looking over the last few weeks and today you're five seconds shorter than normal. And I say, okay, you know, that, that that's down a little bit. Is everything all right? And they'll say, well, you know, I'm just super stressed. And, you know, I got stuff going on with my kids and this and that. Now, they didn't walk in the door with that conversation, right? But now they're offering it up. So now that I know that, what I know is I have a less resilient organism in front of me. And so I may have to peel back a little bit because if not, if I was going to do repeats on the echo bike, I might just wreck them. I might destroy them and drive them even further, further into a sympathetic state than they already are. So I just you know, need to know to adjust that. Now, if let's say that breath hold time's up five seconds. Yeah, you know, best night of sleep I've had in a while. This is happening. Well, that may be the day I'm going for that PR. I'm teaching the new skill or I'm adding a little bit of volume to your workout. So being able to dynamically program is kind of how we teach you how to, to take everything you've learned and then adjust it based on, you know, the, the, the state of the organism in front of you. Yeah, that's so smart. With every training program that we come up with, I explain this to my clients. Like we are making very good guesses. We've done this before. We've trained people for the marathon or the competition or, you know, to get strong or to play with the grandkids. Like we've done this before and we have a good idea of how this is going to go. So I'm going to make this program. And it's going to be great, but I don't know how you're going to do on Tuesday the 16th or after that, you know, transatlantic flight that you took. Like I don't know what you ate on Saturday night before a Sunday morning workout. All of those things have a factor and I can can make really great guesses, but at the end of the day, that's what they are. It's a guess. And, and you have to be able to adapt to these situations. I think every personal trainer knows that absolute miserable frustration of creating the greatest plan ever and overstressing and overthinking for hours before the session, only to have the person come in and say like, yeah, I goofed up my shoulder and, and thrown out everything that you are going to do. And you have to adapt on the fly. So I love that you're able to marry those two things together, the, the science and the art both. Um, I think that's so important to incorporate. And if you think about most of what we learned on the science side from, from a programming standpoint comes from Eastern block, you know, research that was done, um, which is amazing stuff and has, if you can know how to extrapolate it correctly, but you also have to know the, its limitations, right? A lot of that research and data is based on uh, a scenario that we just don't have in our lives. And I, you know, in the course, I say, all right, how many people can take their clients, lock them in a cabin? right? You wake them up when you tell them to get up, they eat what you say to eat. They come and train. They do exactly what you say to do. Then you stick them back in their cabin. They eat again, what you want to eat. And then they go to sleep when you want to sleep. And then you're going to do, and maybe mix in a little steroids in their food as well. Right. <laughs> Cause that's what that's based on. Right. That's not the, the, even the professional athletes I have, they have kids, they have business ventures. They have all these other, they have travel, they have appearances. Like it's, it's very hard to base your program on strict rules that are based on a, a, a fictional character for most people. Now, if you have, you know, four years and you have lots of control and all those things, it's much easier to do more traditional block periodization and those sorts of things. But the reality is I don't have that. The reality is the high school that I'm going to go to this afternoon, the, I have kids who are preparing for a football season, but they're also playing baseball right now that, that, that ones are that just came off a basketball season and other ones that have been training since December. 
like all these different factors. Then I have other ones that go work at the deli three days a week for, for eight hours. Right. So like, that's how I got to factor in that, that there's needs to be a little bit of consideration for the dynamics of what's happening at three, three hours a day, as much as we'd like to think the world revolves us and our pro around us and our program. It's, it just doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. So true. And I think there's a good business model there. Maybe let's go rent out that shack in Siberia and do some Rocky four montage workouts with people like me. Maybe that's a good solution. Yeah. It would make our lives so much, so much easier. easier. So much yeah. easier. Eric, this has been an incredible conversation. Selfishly. I have learned so much from all of your content and even from this discussion today, I really appreciate how thoughtful you are at looking at things and not admitting that you have a monopoly on all the truth that's out there about fitness, but being able to look back on your career and see the things that, yeah, maybe we didn't get this exactly right. So let's refine this. Let's make this better. And let's do the right thing for the client that, that really shines through in you and your content. And in this conversation today, um, where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work? Okay. So the, the first easy landing spot is just go to my website, which is Eric Degatti, E-R-I-C-D-A-G-A-T-I.com. And because I do these types of things and go out and teach, you know, all over the place is I put on my, my homepage, something called ask Eric. And so if you got a question, just go on there, it goes to my email and then I get back in a couple of days with a question. So that's the easiest way. And then you also have the links on there, all my social media, um, you have links on there to the, to the new pr principles of program design, uh, stuff which we actually just released a free preview version of. So we took the eight hour live course, we boiled that down into a two hour online course for the people that can't get to us. And then we took the two hour online course and boiled it down to a 20 minute preview. Um, I joke with with Mike is that, that most, we were talking about some marketing stuff, which it, it, at the end of the day, we're coaches, we're not really good marketing people um, from, from the sense of, you know, we're not one of those, uh, 50 people that sends me a Facebook friend request that says they're going to get my personal training to yeah, a million totally. a year this month. Um, yes. Um, so with that, you know, you see a lot of, Oh, this is the top secret formula for, you know, more mobility, top secret formula for, 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 you know, having endless clients and making millions of dollars. I kind of stuck at secrets. So I said, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to give away it for free. Right. I'm going to say, let's take some, some highlights from this thing. Let's give people 20 minutes of free stuff. And if they're intrigued, we love you to, to jump in and dive further, but that's one of the things we have. The other thing that we've been doing is if you follow principles of program design, we both repost the stuff on our personal feeds. But what we've been doing is we, we came up with this idea, I don't know, maybe about three, four months ago where we have a theme for the week. And so like last week's theme, we was dealing with stuff with the knee. Um, we've had stuff talking about um, training high school teams. We've had themes of, uh, just talking about breathing and each day we'll do a post related to that specific topic. And then we culminate that on Friday where we have an Instagram live one o'clock Eastern on Fridays where we just talk about that. And if people have questions, they can shoot in questions, but we just talk about that. And Mike and I just go through all the different things to consider. Like last week was the knee. This week we're talking about training for runners, you know, and each week it's a, you know, we try to vary the topics up all over the place so people can kind of get a taste of everything. But and then eventually that Instagram live, we're working on that'll eventually become its own podcast. At some wow. Point. Oh, but that's awesome. We're, we're not quite, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Wow. What's the response been on that theme of the week? That sounds amazing. Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool because we try to have it where it's not confining to one thing. And so it's interesting to hear certain themes resonate with certain, you know, and we've gotten What's cool is we've gotten a wide range of people that have gotten engaged. So the people who could care less about training high school teams, right got really, really excited when we did about training considerations for people over 40, right? That was a whole week, right? And so people got really geeked out about the stuff. We did a whole week on the knee. We did a whole week on the low back, right? Those aren't the same people who get geeked up when we're talking about training for power, right? Because that was a different group. So that's why we're trying to get all these different populations to start learning about other sides of things that are in other people's silos. Yeah, I absolutely love that. What a great idea. I can't wait to see how that evolves over time. That's awesome. Dude, Eric Degatti, thank you so very much for everything that you've done, everything that you've been able to develop and share. Again, not only with the individuals, but also the fitness professionals who can then go out and teach more people. Uh, multiplying yourself and all your knowledge is such a wonderful tool. And so thank you so very much for everything you've done. And thank you for taking the time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Thank you. This is fun. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio.
As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, We have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically, we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always want to keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement. And even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas, of your body. It's something that can prevent injury later on. Some muscles need to be stretched, some need to be strengthened, and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life. So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.